All right. Good morning, Summer Point Church. How are you guys doing today? Good? It's great to see you guys. Uh, unfortunately, Pastor Elijah has been sick for a few days now, so he wasn't able to join us this morning. So say a prayer for him, and uh, he should be back joining us again next week. But I just want to start out by saying, don't we have the best church family here? Don't we? Give yourself a round of applause. We are the best church family. Uh, my wife and I came here about two years, three months ago, and uh, we just jumped right in. We love this church family. We love being here in San Diego, the best city in America, right? So uh, this morning, we're talking about how do we deal with temptations. Temptations are something that we deal with all the time in the Christian life. If you're following along this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4, starting out in verse 1 as our primary text. But we are tempted all the time, right? We're tempted at work. We're tempted at home. We're tempted with our friends. We're tempted at church maybe sometimes. We're tempted on our TVs. We're tempted on our phones. Temptation can be everywhere around us. It doesn't matter if we've been doing well spiritually or doing bad spiritually. Sometimes we just wake up and we just face more temptations on certain days just because it is that way. Right now where we're picking up in Matthew chapter 4, just prior to this, Jesus was baptized. There's this beautiful scene where Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist and he comes out of the water. And the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. The heavens are open and the Father says, this is my beloved Son with who I am well pleased. And it's this amazing scene. And then the next verse, the next verse after this beautiful scene is this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Right after his baptism, right after the heavens are open, God declares, this is my son. Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The first point this morning, if you're following along in your notes, is that temptations come in times of strength and weakness. Right after his baptism, Jesus is thrown into the wilderness to be tested, to be tempted. By the devil. You know what's crazy to me about this? Is that the Spirit led him into the wilderness. The Spirit of God was the one that led him to this. And I was just thinking to myself, didn't Jesus one time, didn't he tell us to pray a certain prayer? Lead me not into what? Temptation. But who's leading Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted? The Spirit of God. So I was kind of wrestling with this in my mind, like, uh, what's going on here? This is a little weird. And sometimes when we approach Scripture, we're going to see things like that. We're going to see things that might seem contradictory to us. But usually I, I don't think it's the Scripture contradicting itself. I think it's our interpretations contradict themselves. So I was trying to think about how do we reconcile this? How do we say, lead me not into temptation? And I thought about asking the opposite question, actually. What would it look like? If we ask God to lead us into temptation. Like, wives, what if you're praying and you're just like, God, I just pray that my husband, I love him so much. I just pray that he would leave that sock on the ground in the bathroom. God, I just pray that he would leave his clothes all over the floor. God, just please put me in that situation where I might be tempted to be angry. We don't pray like that, right? That'd be kind of weird. And if someone, you hear someone pray like that, like, say like, hey, man. Just stop. It's just weird. <laughs> Temptations come in times of strength and weaknesses. 
But God tells us, lead me not into temptation. That's asking God, please help me to stay in situations where I'm not as apt to fall to temptation. We know that God himself doesn't tempt us. James chapter 1 verse 13 says, no one, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God doesn't tempt people. God's not evil. God didn't make evil. So God will not tempt anyone. But God will sometimes allow us to be in situations where we will be tempted by other things. Where we will be even tempted by the enemy, like you see Jesus here. In Matthew chapter 4. Earlier this year, Brianna, my wife, and I, we went on this trip to my cousin's wedding, which is up in Washington State. And we were kind of right on the border between Oregon and Washington. So it's beautiful up there. You guys ever been up there? It's really beautiful. There's all this greenery and trees and stuff like that. And so we decided to go water rafting. It's like, well, we're up here. We might as well do a little bit of water rafting. We've never done it before. And so we, we jump in there, and it's pretty intense, like straight from the get-go. We're water rafting. They're like yelling like, row, row harder, keep going. It's really intense. And then we kind of get into these smooth waters. And there's this spot during these smooth waters where it's just kind of trickling along the stream. And there was this little cliff. When I say cliff, I mean it's just like a little 10-foot drop or so. And they let people get out of their raft and jump off of it and just kind of get back on the raft and have a jolly old time. So some people were doing that. And this one person in particular, they jump off this cliff and they're floating down the river on their back. And the raft guides were telling them, just turn over and swim. Just swim back to the raft. And they're just flailing, flailing, helpless, like, help me. Just completely helpless. And come to find out that this individual did not know how to swim. And I want to say this in a nice way. Some people in this world just amaze me. Some people are just so incredible. Like, I mean, to have the boldness to not know how to swim and decide to go water rafting, it takes a special kind of person, doesn't it? It takes a special kind of person. And then later on this trip, that, so on this water rafting little journey they take you on, there's this drop. That's the highest drop, it's commercial drop, meaning they'll let normal people like you and me go on it. Uh, highest commercial drop in the United States of America, second highest in the world, and it's about 13-foot waterfall drop. And it's really intense. They're like, they try to scare you and like tell you how dangerous it is and how you could get trapped under the waterfall and all these different things. So it was pretty scary, but we're like, okay, we're here. Like we pay the money on this rafting trip. Let's just do it. So, so we do it. We row and row and row and then we get down and we go like this and we survive the trip. I was kind of amazed this other person decided to do that waterfall as well. They made it. They made it out. Helps to have that life raft, right? But sometimes, especially in older days, that's how people learn how to swim, right? They just jumped right in. I saw this clip from an old John Wayne movie, and he was, there was like this little boy next to him by this river, and little boy, he said, go get this thing that's out there in the river. He said, I don't know how to swim. He said, you don't? How old are you? Six? He's like, okay, throw him in. <laughs> and he learned how to swim. It's not really fun to learn how to swim that way. <laughs> Jesus goes from the calm waters of baptism. This calm, this beautiful scene, the Holy Spirit descending like the dove, the heavens open. This is my beloved son. From this great, calm, peaceful, spiritual moment to the rapids of temptation. He's thrown into it immediately. 
Do you ever go from being affirmed by God? You know your purpose, maybe in some sort of like spiritual high moment in your life. And then soon after, bam, temptation. Temptation hits you. You can be in a really great place spiritually, good or bad. Temptation just hits you out of nowhere. Life gets hard. But God won't take you to the rapids without a lifeguard. The Spirit led him. God was with him. And Jesus fasted 40 days. And we see this throughout Scripture with examples like Moses reigning 40 days, 40 nights. Uh, The Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. So Jesus just had his baptism, which I would consider to be a time of like spiritual strength. He fasted, which could also be seen as a time of spiritual strength, but he was hungry, which could actually be viewed as a time of weakness, as a time where he was more prone to rely on himself rather than on God for his own provision because he was hungry. My wife, one time she said to me, before, I never knew that people really got hangry. Like, I never experienced that. Like, my family, when they are hungry, they never really get hangry. They're not hunger, anger, if, if you know what that means. But that was until I married you. <laughs> me. She's talking about me. Now she knows. I mean, I'm probably not the only person in the room today that gets hangry, right? Any hangry people out there? Maybe a little bit? Okay. Thank you for being honest. The rest of you are liars. No, just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> but Jesus is hungry. And I don't know about you, but when I'm hungry, I can be more apt, more apt to temptation, apt to sin, possibly. Maybe there's some more impatience. I want my food. Jesus is hungry. He's in the wilderness alone. If you're in a good place spiritually, a time of strength, or in a time of weakness, temptation is going to come. Just because you're tempted doesn't make you a bad Christian doesn't make you not a faithful Christian. It just makes you like everybody else. In fact, I would say it makes you like Jesus because Jesus was tempted. Because the enemy came to steal, kill, and destroy. And he's going to do that whenever he can. He's going to do that when you're in a good place. He's going to do that when you're at your lowest moment. That's why we have to be ready for it. Here's how we fight temptation. Matthew chapter 4, verse 3 through 4. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The next point this morning is that to fight temptation, I have to know who I am. Just like God, so God just previously affirmed something in Jesus, right? He said, This is my Son. And this kind of reminds me what the devil's saying here. Remember in the garden, Adam and Eve? He's tempting Eve. Did God really say, did God really say this? Did God really say that you shouldn't eat the fruit of this tree? The the devil comes to Jesus. He says, did God really say, if you are the son of God, if that is who you really are, then do this. The place where temptation often attacks us first is our identity. God says, you're his child. Satan says, are you really a child of God? If you are, God says you're born again. Are you really born again? Because it seems like you still have some of those bad habits or traits that you had before you became born again. 
God says there's no condemnation. Satan says, is there really no condemnation for you? He lies about who you are. Because if the devil can get you to question who you are in Christ, then he can get you to do things that are contrary to your identity. So he comes to Jesus says, if you really are the son of God, then do this. And he tempts him. And Jesus responds with God's word. He refers to a passage back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2 through 3. Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness these 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character, to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So Jesus responds to him. The devil says to Jesus, you're so hungry. Turn these stones in this wilderness into bread. You won't be hungry anymore. And Jesus points back to the Israelites who wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Just like Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. And he points back to this point in time when God says this to them. They're complaining. They're hungry. And guess what God does to help them with their hunger? He makes Krispy Kreme come down from heaven. Right? Manna. Maybe it wasn't Krispy Kreme. But if it was, it was that hot now glazed donuts. Amen. That's some good stuff, right? But he makes manna from heaven. He feeds them. But he did it to teach them a lesson. And the lesson was, your provision out here in this wilderness, the thing that's going to get you to the promised land that I have promised you, it's not your provision for yourself. It's my provision for you. And I'm going to make a way. I'm going to make it rain from heaven. When it seems like there's no way, there's no way you can have provision. There's no way that you're going to get to the thing that I promised you. God makes a way. He makes it possible. But temptation says, rather than wait for God's way for me, let me just take the easy way out. Let me just turn these stones into bread. You know what temptation we face a lot? It's taking things into our own hands. The temptation to alleviate perhaps even our hunger for peace, our hunger for love. The temptation to alleviate this hunger, that's a natural hunger, but we fill it with things that are harmful for us rather than depend on God. The temptation to do everything first and then pray about it later. It's taking everything into my own hands. The temptation to run our own show without listening to guidance from the director. The temptation to take our problems into our own hands is to live by bread rather than to live by the word of God. Because God made you a promise. God's going to get you through it. But you got to trust in him. Don't do it your way. Do it his way. Because those that wait on the Lord... He will renew their strength, right? They will mount up on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. But that promise is for those who do what? They wait on the Lord. They live by the word of God, not by bread. We don't have to face trials on our own by taking things into our own hands. We don't have to face temptation on our own by just trying to be better, taking it into our own hands. Because God took Jesus to this trial. God took Jesus to the temptation. 
And sometimes God allows those things in our life too. But if God took you to it, then God's going to take you through it. Amen? He's going to take you through it. He's going to be there with you. Matthew chapter 4, verse 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, there again, starting with his identity, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The next point is that to fight temptation, I must trust God, not test God. I must trust God, not test God. On the 26th of January in 1972, there's a woman named Vesna Vulovic who was a flight attendant on board a JAT Yugoslav Airlines flight number 367. The flight path between Stockholm in Sweden and Belgrade in Serbia took the aircraft over Czechoslovakia, which is now the Czech Republic. And that was where the plane exploded into three pieces. The explosion and the crash killed everyone on board. The fall was 300, uh, sorry, the fall was 33,333 feet. That's very precise. Everyone except Vesna died. She survived. It's the tallest, the highest fall ever survived by anyone. And they think maybe, well, maybe she was pinned in the back by that cart thing, and that kind of helped protect her a little bit. Maybe she hit the snow just right from the part of the airplane that she was in, but she survived. Obviously, she has some back problems, right? So she wasn't perfect after that, but she survived. And that's a miracle. We could say that is a miracle for someone to survive a fall from an airplane with no parachute. The devil comes to Jesus says, if you're the son of God, I want you to prove yourself with this magic trick. I want you to go to the top of the temple. I want you to this high place where everybody can see you. And I want you to jump down. Because if you're the son of God, then God is going to provide for you. God's going to give you life. God's not going to let you just die if you really are the son of God. And Jesus responds to him and says, don't test God. Don't test God. And I was reading this and I can't help but think, how do we test God? How do we test God sometimes? Because the devil is saying to Jesus, I want you to put yourself in a situation where you're going to ask God to bail you out, essentially, is what he's saying. I think there's different ways where we test God. One way that I can think of is I was working at a summer camp and there's this one night where kids were writing things on a board that they're feeling or I don't remember exactly what it was, but they're writing things on a post-it note and putting it on this board. And one kid wrote, I remember reading it, I just wish God would give me a sign. And I was reading that, I was like, you're a church camp, bro. How much of a sign do you need? You're in the word of God every day. You're surrounded by Christians. God brought you to church camp to hear the gospel. How much of a sign do you need? It's testing God. Because God's given, all, given us the sign. Jesus said if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe somebody rose from the dead. God gives us the sign ultimately through his word. If you're at church here this morning, God's given you a sign. You're here. You're hearing from the word of God. But sometimes we think, I just want some extra revelation now, sometimes in some situations, God 
is gracious to give people that. I was just talking to, I think it was Larry Doris after first service, and he said there was a guy praying for a sign, and he was a part of this, Larry was a part of this church plant, and the week after this guy made this prayer, somebody came and gave him a pamphlet for the new church they're planting. And so he came in and joined their church. Now that's great. That happens sometimes. Sometimes God is gracious enough to give us signs even when we don't see them all around us, right? But we shouldn't test God. Another way we test God or another example of that, I want to do a random side tangent real quick. What does it take for you to worship God? Just think about that. Does God have to do something extraordinary, out of the ordinary? I think God does extraordinary things all the time. But what does it take for you to worship God? Is God enough, just who he is? What you hear about him, what you see in his word, what he's done for you, what you see in creation, is that enough for you to worship him? It should be. Side tangent is over. Okay. Do you test God or do you trust God when it comes to temptation? An alcoholic who... Uh, may be more susceptible to temptation if they're at a bar. If they just have in their mind, well, I can go to this bar and hang out with my friends. God's going to protect me. That's testing God, right? If someone struggles with gossiping and they think, I can go and hang out with these friends who gossip all the time. God's going to protect me. I'm not really going to be tempted with that. That's testing God. Because you're putting yourself in a situation and asking God to bail you out when you know you probably shouldn't be in that situation, right? It's testing God. Assuming that God will not allow you to bear the natural, natural consequence of your actions is testing God. I think this is manifested in the most extreme way to say, God will forgive me. I can sin as much as I want. It doesn't matter. God's just going to forgive me later. The, the book of Romans says, shall we sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Will God forgive you? Yes. God will forgive anyone. God will forgive anyone. It doesn't matter what you've done. God will forgive you if you want forgiveness. Now there's a difference between asking for forgiveness and wanting forgiveness. Because sometimes, you guys know, like your kid got the hand in the cookie jar kind of deal, right? They're not sorry they did it. They're sorry they got caught. <laughs> That's the difference between just asking for forgiveness and wanting forgiveness. Because if someone asks God for forgiveness, but in their heart, they don't care about what they did. They're not remorseful. They're not repentant. They know they're just going to do the same thing. They're, they're only worried about being forgiven for the punishment of their sin, not for being forgiven for their sins. They don't care that their sins separated them from God. God will forgive anyone that wants to be in a relationship with him. God will forgive anyone that wants their sins forgiven. But he's not going to forgive people that don't want their sins forgiven. And I think that's fair. You guys think that's fair? I mean, I think that's fair. And so we shouldn't test God by just asking for forgiveness when we don't really mean it in our hearts, just thinking God's going to forgive me later. I'll get right with God later. No, get right with God now. He loves you. Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. Let's move on. It says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. 
Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The next point this morning, to fight temptation, I must value a greater delayed pleasure over a smaller immediate pleasure. A lot of people think Christianity is about denying ourselves a pleasure, and that's pretty much it. Just following all these rules. Christians can't have any fun. You guys ever hear that? Christians can't have any fun. Christians can have a lot of fun. In fact, I think Christians should have more fun than anybody. Amen? Because who made fun? God. God made fun. God is the author of all creation. God is the author of all pleasure. He made it. And as the author of all creation, he is the authority on how we can live our life to the fullest. As the author of pleasure, he is the authority of how we can have the greatest pleasure in our lives. Christians should have the most fun. Fire can be a very pleasurable thing. In a fireplace, it provides warmth and comfort, feeling of safety, feeling of home. But if that fire goes from the fireplace to the curtains, to the floor or the carpet or the sofa, it's not very fun anymore, is it? It's not very safe anymore. It doesn't comfort you. Pleasure that is not in line with God's design is like that. That's what the enemy does. He warps pleasure. He takes something that was meant to be safe, comforting, good, and changes it into something bad. I was reading the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And the Screw Tape Letters is a book where a demon writes letters to his nephew, Demon, about how to tempt people. So it's kind of an interesting book if you ever want to read it. Uh, it's fictional. So Demon is writing to his nephew, Demon, and he's giving him advice. And he talks about pleasure. And he says, we have never been able to conjure up a pleasure ourselves, no matter how hard we try. The enemy, they're talking about God because they're demons. The enemy is the creator of all pleasures. We've tried to make our own pleasures, but we couldn't do it. The only thing that we can do is corrupt the pleasures that the enemy has created. Temptation presents to you a corrupted pleasure of God. That's what it does. Pleasure is a good thing. God made it. God made it to be a good thing. But the enemy takes this permanent, lasting pleasure that God created, and the enemy corrupts that and turns it into a temporary pleasure that will not satisfy you the way God made you to be satisfied. God made you to be satisfied. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be joyful in him. Temptation says, take the easy way out. The devil has influence and power over many things. There's a lot of worldly people in, in a lot of powerful places, obviously in our world today, back then as well. So the devil takes Jesus and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Notice that. The kingdoms of the world and their glory. At the time you had, for example, the Roman Empire, which isn't really a thing anymore, right? Because the glory of kingdoms fall. 
The only thing the enemy can offer you is something that's going to rust and turn to dust. So he says to Jesus, if you just bow and worship me, I will give you the glory of all these kingdoms. But only the glory of God prevails. And Jesus responds, you should only worship God. The devil promised something to Jesus that was his destiny to receive. Just like the devil promises us pleasures and powers and and things like this that we're actually meant to receive. Obviously, sexuality and marriage is a great example of that, right? And then he corrupts that pleasure into something that we were never meant to experience, something that is actually harmful to us. He offers to Jesus, I'm going to give you all the kingdoms in the world and their glory if you would bow and worship me. But that's something that Jesus was meant to receive. Because later on in Matthew 28, right, the Great Commission... Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore to all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I wasn't originally planning on doing the whole verse, but there you go. It's there. The point of that was I have all authority. Jesus was always meant to have all authority. Colossians says he's the image of the invisible God. He's the one that everyone, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Every knee and every tongue will confess. But the devil says, you don't have to wait, Jesus. You could have this now. You could have the glory of the world now. But Jesus knew that what the enemy was offering him was cheap. And he had to go to the cross to get the real price, which, by the way, is you. You are the price of the cross. So Jesus resists the devil. He didn't worship him. You know, when we think of devil worship, we often think of, like, weird stuff. Upside-down stars, like, sacrificing pigs, weird stuff like that. When you think of devil worship, but I want you to think for a second. If you are the devil, okay, just imagine and you want people to follow you, do you think the most effective way to do that was to make the only way that people could worship you by doing weird stuff, but like the stars and the pigs? Go like this. No, right? <laughs> right? Because it's weird. You want a lot of people to worship you. A lot of people aren't going to worship you if they think the way to do that is a weird thing. Right? Logically. So... The devil finds other ways, other avenues for people to worship him and his agenda. And there's a connection between seeking the glory of this temporary world, like we see here in this passage, and worshiping the devil. And there's a lot of temporary, worldly things that we idolize. And idolatry doesn't mean you bow down to something physically. I think it has a lot to do with what you're spending your time on, your thoughts on. Things that we idolize that could be classified as worshiping the devil and his agenda. It's not seeking the kingdom of God first. So how do we fight temptation? We recognize that it comes in times of strength and weakness. You remember who God says you are, your identity founded in Christ. You trust God, not test God. Last way, we we value a greater delayed pleasure over a smaller immediate pleasure. And the last way that we fight temptation is I must use the truth of scripture to counter the lies of temptation. 
I must use the truth of Scripture to counter the lies of temptation. That's what we see Jesus doing here. Every time the enemy says something to him, tries to tempt him with a lie, because the devil's a liar. Do you know that? The devil's a liar. And like sometimes the devil's lies will be 90% truth, 10% lie. But if I gave you a drink that's 90% water and 10% poison, it's still going to kill you. And so the devil likes to mix truth into his lies. But at the end of the day, it's all a lie. And Jesus uses the truth of Scripture to counter the lies of temptation. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is what God's Word does for us. It teaches us what is right. It reproofs us or makes us repentant for when we sin. It corrects us and shows us how to live righteously before God. The Word of God is sufficient for everything that you need to live the Christian life. All the answers are there. But quick side tangent, sometimes I hear people say, well, I can just read my Bible. I don't got to go to church. I'll just read my Bible and then I'm good enough. The Bible has everything I need. Well, it's true. The Bible does have all the information that you need to live the Christian life. So you open your Bible. What's some of that information? Go to church, Right? So if you want to be obedient to God's word, yes, you need to be in a body of believers like this awesome church right here, Summit Point Church. You got to be in a body of believers who are going to help you, encourage you to grow, uh, hold you accountable as well. So the Bible teaches us what is right, sufficient for everything that we need. But let's bring this back to temptation. You guys know what apologetics is? Can someone tell me real quick, what's Apologetics. How would you define it, Brad? Yeah, learning about the Bible, knowing the Bible. A lot of people would define it uh, looking at the passage in First or Second Peter that says, be prepared to give a defense for the hope. That's apologia in the Greek, apologetics. Giving a defense for the hope that is within you. So when we think of apologetics, a lot of people think of, well, I need to know how to talk to an atheist about God and, or a Mormon or a Muslim or somebody of a different religion than me. And that's true. That is part of what apologetics is. But I was in seminary and I had this professor for apologetics class. And he described that. that we think apologetics is all about convincing unbelievers to believe what we believe. But the truth is the unbeliever that you need to convince the most is you. It's you. Because you have doubts. And you have unbelief sometimes. And every time you have temptation in your life, every time you're tempted, you have to convince yourself to believe the promises of God rather than the promises of that current temptation. You have to prove that the lies are wrong with the word of God. That's apologetics. So you do that by memorizing scripture, by knowing the word of God. And if you have a particular temptation you struggle with, here's just a little practical tip. Like, for example, if your temptation is coveting or, or slander or um, lust or anything like that, you can look up Google Bible verses about that sin or that temptation and memorize that verse. So then if you're commonly tempted with that thing, you'll have a Bible verse to fall back on and, and remind yourself, this is the truth of God's word. This is how I live. I'm going to trust in God's promise for me, not the promise of this temporary temptation. I want to close with Hebrews chapter 4, 
verse 15, this verse talking about Jesus and his temptations. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Here's the last point this morning. There's no point to fighting temptation if I don't have a relationship with Jesus. There is no point. If you've been fighting temptation, just trying to be a better Christian, trying to follow God more, but you don't know Jesus, man, you're just running on a treadmill. You're wasting your time. There's no point to any of this if you don't have a relationship with Christ. If you don't have salvation that comes by grace through faith. Fighting temptation is only a part of the Christian life. It's not the main point. Sometimes we make it that though, don't we? Sometimes we get it backwards. Our battle against temptation should be a result of our relationship with Christ. It should not be the means of having a relationship with Christ. The point is to know Jesus and follow him. And the reason why we can do that is what this verse here in Hebrews 4.15 says. God became a man. We have a high priest. That's Jesus Christ. God incarnate. John 1. The, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was tempted just like we were. You know God has struggled with your temptations. You know God knows how it feels to be tempted. And when you read that word us, it's not that God just struggles with your temptations. It's that God, Jesus Christ, struggled with the temptations of the person that you think is lesser than you. Jesus struggled with temptations that you think are like worse temptations than your temptations. You can't look down on someone for what they struggle with. Because if you do that, guess who you're looking down on? Jesus. Because he struggled with that temptation, yet without sin. He never sinned. Never one time. Because he never sinned. He was the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Because he lived a life that you and I could not live. God lived a life you and I could not live. And he died on the cross for every sin. He paid it all. It's paid in full. He rose from the grave. He's alive forevermore. And when we put our faith and trust in what he did for us, then we're saved. Then we follow God. And fighting temptation is a part of that. But it's not the main thing. Don't get it backwards. If you're a believer, maybe you've gotten backwards a little bit. Maybe you've been trying to fight temptation to get closer to God. And I'm not saying they're not connected. There's a connection there. But our works are a result of our faith. Better works will not make us have better faith. Better faith makes us have better works. That's the order that it goes in. We need to be saved. We need to be closer to Jesus. And that's what God wants for us. God just wants to know you. And you can know him through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us a message from your word today, Lord. Pray that you would help us in our own battles with temptation, God. That we would follow the example that Jesus gives us here. The example to use the sword of your word to counter the lies of the enemy. That we would not treasure the temporary things, God, but that we would Wait for the greater delayed pleasure that you give us through your promises. That you are the author of all pleasure. You're the author of all fun. That we would trust in your promises to give us those things in the best way possible. But God, most of all, 
that we would remember there's no point to fighting temptation if we're not focused on having a relationship with Jesus. Because that's, that's the main thing that matters, is that we would just know you. God, that our lack of sin does not bring us closer to you. Only your grace brings us closer to you, Lord. And God, may we grow in our battles against temptation, but may that growth come as a result of just abiding in you and abiding in your love and grace. We pray all this in the strong name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen.